you have your copy of Scripture in a little bit, we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 12, verses 27 through 47. If you'd like to go ahead and and, uh, find your way to Nehemiah 12, 27 through 47, is what we will be looking at. What we'll see in our verses this morning is the Israelites reflecting on the goodness of God. Just saying about the goodness of God. In this passage, we'll see the Israelites reflecting on the goodness of God and how God has enabled them to complete the rebuilding of the wall in such a short amount of time. They wanted to offer praises to God publicly for His guidance, His help, and His protection. They wanted to dedicate not only the restored walls, but their reformed community to the glory of God. That was their goal. And Nehemiah gives to us a clear narrative of this service of thanksgiving, and I believe it gives us some important biblical guidelines regarding the nature, centrality, and purpose of worship. Now, worship is entirely about bringing God glory. I've shared with you before that the Westminster Shorter Catechism asked the question, what is the chief end of man? The response, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, worship, as I have also stated before, can be described as worth-ship. It means those acts of our mind, our heart, and our will, whereby we are greatly ascribing to God worth to who he is. There can be no other human activity in our life that is as lofty as adoring God. This is why it has been described as the main purpose of our existence. Our main purpose is to glorify him. Worship is so much more than, than vocal proclamation or listening participation in a public service as we offer prayers and sing songs and hear readings and give offerings and listen to Christian preaching. It is instead total submission of all that we are and all that we have to everything that we know of God. William Temple described adoration as the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of actual sin. Now, as Christians, we formally recognize the priority of worship, but Christians do not have a common mind regarding the character or form of worship. The topic of worship is often vehemently discussed among Christians, Should we have participatory worship? Should we have charismatic worship? Should we have ecumenical worship, interfaith worship, contemporary worship, traditional worship, blended worship, balanced worship? Should we pursue excellence in our worship, or should it be user-friendly, or should our worship patterns impact non-believers? We could go on and on when talking about worship. In fact, believers have talked about this subject a great deal about worship, and, and often they specifically only relate it to music, but, but they've, they've exhausted the topic 
of worship. And few have argued that the debate has necessarily inspired better worship in our churches. One of the most pressing issues that has to be at the heart of worship is not what pleases us. That's not the question. It's not, hey, what pleases me? Or do I like singing this song? Or do I like doing this? Or, or how does that make me feel? That's not the pressing question. The question is what most honors God. That's the question. Far too often the subject is discussed from highly subjective perspectives, not objective ones. And that's really not helpful, to be honest with you. Subjective things don't really seem to help anything. We have different and conflicting preferences, and without help from the scriptures, we have no way of knowing what pleases God most about our worship. The purpose of worship is not to provide us with some sort of happy feeling inside. People will sometimes leave a worship experience and say things like, man, that was really awesome, or wow, that really moved me, or that was delightful, or whatever we can come up with. But we can say those things about a concert as well. In other words, the value of worship patterns cannot be determined on subjective grounds. That is, whether we find it helpful in our life or not. What is helpful to us may indeed not be acceptable to God. Stop and think about our world today and the pursuit of religion. There are people that adore idols, that kneel on hard floors, that abstain from certain foods, that beat their bodies, that turn prayer wheels, that light candles, that recite mantras, that go on pilgrimages, all because they passionately believe that these acts that they are doing will help them relieve the guilt that's in their life or get rid of their anxiety that's in their life or obtain some sort of pardon. They believe that they are, they are registering their allegiance and guaranteeing their security. That's why they do those things. And even though they feel that these subjective deeds are helpful to them, it does not mean for an instant that they honor the one true living God. In fact, some of them are condemned by God. That is why it is to the the word of God, to the scripture that we must turn if we want clear guidance on the topic of worship. And as Southern Baptists, we believe it is to God's word that we must turn for guidance in everything in our life. We believe in sola scriptura, So that means the the things that we do in our life, if we cannot go to this and prove that's why we're doing it, then you've got no business doing that. Especially in the body of Christ. With that said, if you are willing and able, I would ask that you please stand for the reading of God's word, Nehemiah chapter 12, verses 27 through 47 this morning I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness with thanksgiving and with singing with cymbals harps and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem 
from the villages of the Netophetelites, also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Asmava. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. And then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the Dungate, and after them went Hoshiah, and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zakur, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azared, Melaliah, Gilaliah, Maiah, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David and the man of God, and Ezra, the scribe, went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yeshaniah, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of a hundred, to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. And so both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Messiah, Miniamim, Micaiah, Elioniah, Zechariah, and Hananiah, with trumpets, and Messiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehoamai, Malachijah, Elam, and Ezra, and the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, Men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, the tithes, to gather into them the portions required by the law from the priests for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, There were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites. And the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. This morning, Lord, we will look at worship. We will see practical things that applies to our lives. May we hear your word. May we leave here people that worship the Almighty God and may it be evident in our lives. Speak for your saints are hearing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We are on firm ground when we deliberately minimize our personal preferences in worship and, and endeavor to examine the subject as much as 
objectively as objectively as humanly possible. Clear and biblical teaching about the nature and content of worship is likely to be our best guide. If we genuinely believe in the unique authority and reliability and the relevance of the scripture, then we're right in expecting that the Bible will have important things to say concerning worship. And it won't be just something that we read with interest, but instead it's something that we copy with enthusiasm. This account of biblical celebration and adoration and thanksgiving and dedication has not been preserved by Nehemiah as a pattern for us to follow exactly. Otherwise, we would have to have two choirs walking in opposite directions around our communities, accompanied by some gifted musicians playing stringed instruments and trumpets and cymbals before entering our worship building. So we don't follow it exactly. However, it's a model for us. We're invited to study it, not with this view of reproducing exactly what we read, but instead to discover what is intended for us by its different elements and, and how, how it supports the passage of uh, the entire passages of Scripture. We might be able to identify some appropriate patterns for worship today, and that's what I want to do with you this morning. So 10 important aspects of acceptable worship this morning I want to look at. First, I want us to see the purpose of worship. The purpose of worship. The whole point of this act of worship was to celebrate what God had done and to thank him for his amazing generosity towards them and to dedicate the people and their work to his glory. The Levites were brought in to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. Nehemiah twelve twenty seven. Lyre being an instrument, not a liar being a person that lies. The main themes of this worship are celebration, thanksgiving, dedication. And that's really at the heart of what worship is all about. First, they magnify the name of God. Celebration is this primary aspect of worship. It does not begin with what we're doing when we pray or sing or speak or ponder. Rather, it begins with who God is and what God has said and what he has done. We glory in those things that took place before we ever even had the desire to think or say anything about God. In worship, we praise God with everything we have. We recall all that God has done and said to his people. Secondly, they acknowledge God's gifts. Thanksgiving is another main aspect of worship. They marveled at God's extraordinary gifts to them. Totally undeserved generosity from God. And with a sense of wonder, they give this public expression of their gratitude towards God. Their, their commitment towards thanksgiving is deliberately repeated throughout this whole passage. In verse 31, we are told that the choirs were appointed to give thanks. And then after they had gone around the newly built walls, both the choirs that gave thanks entered into the temple. Let me just say that our thanksgiving needs to be specific. It's not enough just to express our gratitude formally and well-worn phrases to God. Thanksgiving should be itemized so that we appreciate all the ways in which we are indebted to such a generous God. They had all kinds of reasons to give thanks to God, but most of all, they were thanking him for the completed building enterprise that they had endeavored upon which they now desired to get to dedicate to the glory of God. Furthermore, this Thanksgiving was not some simple little one-time devotional of Thanksgiving. Like, oh, I had my 
Thanksgiving devotional today, which took a, a little bit of time or even took a few hours. It, it continued long after the day of dedication was over in verses 45 and 46. We have this concluding note to the, to the passage that the songs of thanksgiving and praise that were offered to God were not just for that day, but on subsequent occasions in the people's worship. Thirdly, they offered themselves in dedication. To dedicate means to put over the work of human hands to God's ownership. It means to, to say, okay, God, I'm giving you ownership. It's not enough to celebrate God's achievements in history and experience and to thank him for such a merciful intervention. Worship demands. It demands the total surrender of ourselves to God for all that he has done for us. It's, it's total surrender. God, I'm giving you my life. So we have these three elements, right? Thanksgiving, celebration, dedication. And it's an expression of our total being, our intellectual, emotional, volitional aspects of our personality. These three elements have a prominent place in the New Testament as well, in the concept of worship. For this reason, it should have prominence in our worship today. When we worship together, we, sh- we should have celebration. Specifically, we celebrate Christ's victory over the grave, right? We come together. Part of the reason we gather on Sunday morning is to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he conquered the death and grave forever. And that's something to celebrate. It's something to be to be excited about, right? So, so we can be excited that, that the grave has been conquered. So we gather together for that reason. We give thanks for everything that God has done. All, all that God has done in our lives, we give thanks for. The, the, the future, we give thanks for the past. We give thanks for what's going on in our lives currently. And then we worship through dedication. We surrender ourselves to the will of God. Often an appropriate way to end our time together is simply asking God to do his will in our lives. Often an appropriate way for you to respond to any message that's ever preached or any time that you've come together for a worship service, often your appropriate response is, God, have your way in me and do have your will. May your will be done in my life as you walk out of the building. And so we have this purpose of worship, coming together for celebration, thanksgiving, and dedication. Next, we see the nature of worship. One of the secrets of acceptable worship is not about what we do, but how we do it. In verses 27 and 43, we see this emphasis on celebration and joy. This, this opportunity to magnify God was not some somber, but it was, it was a happy occasion. Whenever they came together, their heart overflowed with joy. It happened earlier when the building was completed and and the Passover was celebrated and they met on the square. Back in chapter 8, they celebrated with this great joy because they could understand the words. And as they participated in the Feast of Booths, they had great joy, it said. Worship was never meant to be some sort of depressing, dull experience. Instead, God's people are to come before him with joyful songs. They have 
more that, that should delight their hearts than anyone else in the entire world. You have, you have more to delight in than anyone in the whole world, despite your circumstances. Yet for some reason, at, at times, it, it seems like Christian worship almost seems painful, depressing, monotonous. Guess we'll go in there and sing them songs again. The church on Sunday morning. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's not how God intended it to be. It's supposed to be a natural overflow of a happy spirit. You know what they say about Disney, right? It's the happiest place on earth. But Christianity is to be the happiest religion in the entire world. You know how rare it is for other religions to enter into the temple or their shrine with a happy spirit? We can come before God happily and joyful because Christ has forgiven us of our sins that we no longer walk into the presence of a holy God tainted with sin, but we walk into the presence of a holy God as saints because of the blood of Jesus Christ covers all of your sin. Cheer and delight should find its richest expression in the corporate worship of Christian churches. When we sit and recall our incomparable joys and they are confirmed and shared, it's a terrible witness if an unbeliever comes into a church service and they find People dull and boring with somber faces, hearing people sing at a tediously slow pace as if they're at some sort of funeral service. Sometimes you can go into a church service and you wonder, who died? Let me ask you, seriously, is that a place you want to go to? Those who lead music, which I'm thankful is not me, and so are you, um, have the responsibility of striking clear notes of celebration and thanksgiving and joy right at the beginning of a worship service so that Christians are reminded that we are present and that God is there with us and that we should worship Him for all He is. Now notice, thirdly, the variety of worship. The worship in Jerusalem was not this stereotypical, stereotypical or monochrome worship. There was this wide range of musical gifts used to express adoration and praise. Worship is meant to be shared, this shared experience to which a variety of participants bring their gifts. On that day, many people traveled to the city to use their voices to enrich the worship. We see this in verses 28 and 29. There were instrumentalists that shared in the procession. There were cymbals and harps and lyres. The priests had trumpets and had a part along with those who played with musical instruments as prescribed by David. You had trumpets blowing, cymbals clashing at the expression of praise to the greatness of God. You also had the quieter tones of stringed instruments suitable to express their gratitude for God's mercy to sinners just like themselves. The choral music was given the most prominent place as many singers joined these two large choirs which encompassed the wall to give thanks on behalf of all 
the people. What an awesome sight this must have been. I just wonder, as, as, I, as I hear this, I wonder what psalms they were singing. What, what psalms were they going through in, in proclaiming to God? There's a variety in worship. These people say, well, you can't worship the Lord with a drum up on the stage. And don't think people don't say that, right? I was in a church for nine years that had hour and hour and hour and hours and hours and hours in the middle of debate in elders' meetings on whether you could have a drum on stage. I got to be careful because probably somebody from that church is going to listen to this message, but that's okay. Right? Why? There's all kinds of variety in worship. But also notice the priority of worship. The priority of worship. It doesn't matter how skilled these people are. Because the scripture emphasizes a quality which takes priority over musical ability. And the participation of gifted people in worship. The hearts of the worshipers is of greater importance than the voices of the worshipers. The Lord is not moved by our lofty words or our captivating tunes if we have unworthy and unacceptable lives. He discerns it. And this is why we see the priests and the Levites purified themselves. This cleansing was not just a formality, either it symbolized it symbolized the inward purification. It was designed to direct the people's attention to the necessity of a clean heart. If believers want to stand in the holy place of worship, they must first have clean hands and a pure heart. The psalmist knew the external ritual would achieve nothing if the worshiper treasured unconfessed sin in their life. That is why he prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God. And he goes on to say that you don't delight in a sacrifice or I would bring you a sacrifice. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. The prophet Isaiah exposed the sin of those worshipers who trampled in the courts of God's house with their expensive sacrifices. Like, oh, look at me. I'm high and lofty. I'm highfalutin. Look at my sacrifice over your puny little sacrifice. But their offerings were just a worrisome burden to God. They lifted up their arms in prayer. And they had stained hands and chattering lips which made their sacrifices obnoxious to God, who looked for clean hearts and upright lives. God doesn't care how much money you got in your bank account. He cares about your hearts. The prophet had to acknowledge even himself that he was a man of unclean lips. Only when sin was purged away was he ready to hear from God? In the New Testament, we see that Jesus is looking for something more than ceremonial purity. During his ministry, he would frequently encounter religious zealots who were far more concerned with external cleaning than they were with eternal and internal holiness. He exposes the Pharisees, right? He tells them, you, you wash the cup and the dish while inwardly They're full of greed and self-indulgence. Whoa. 
Uh, that, that cup looks clean on the outside, but inside, it's full of garbage. You're whitewashed tombs filled with dead man's bones. You see, he looks at the heart. God sees the deepest recesses of your heart. You can't hide anything from him. He knows whether or not the words that are on your lips matches the quality of your life. Fifthly, notice the tradition of worship. I have a lot to cover here, so I got to go fast, and I try to be as concise as possible. The people had an appreciation for their history, right? They, they acknowledged their indebtedness to the great traditions of worship in the past. They enjoyed a sense of community with those who came before them. The Psalms would have enriched responsive worship. The, the Levites gave praise and thanksgiving, one section responding to the other section. Responsive participation helped to prevent the congregation from being uh, mere observers of something that was conducted, but they were leaders in it. Those who played instruments were reassured that their offering was prescribed by David. The company of worshipers was pleased to continue the tradition of temple worship, which had enriched the nation's spiritual life for centuries. As the choirs walked around the rebuilt walls, their words and music expressed their indebtedness to the past and what God had done and the people in the past. Long before they were born, their forefathers served and adored God, and they recalled the mercies of God and surrendered themselves to the work of God. I can, I can hear it now, right? Because what we're talking about is tradition. I can hear it now, folks. You're, you're creeping up to the edge of your seat because pastor's talking about tradition, so he's going he's gonna to talk about the good old hymns. You know what I think? I think it's sad that the debate in worship has been marred by a resistance of both traditionalists as well as those that like modern contemporary music because neither wants to acknowledge that they both have an enormous amount to give and to receive from one another. Newly composed worship songs gives freshness and vitality and immediacy to our worship. Their, their words are not as familiar as some of the older hymns, but many of them have the great merit of keeping close to the text of Scripture. However, they too can be sung as, just as repetitively as a hymn, without thinking about the words. Now, on the other hand, there are many of our great hymns of faith that are rich in teaching, have wonderful theology. They have sustained millions of believers through difficult times. I personally think it's good to have older material with new material. They sang the Psalms for a reason because they were an expression of their faith. Three quick things I want to say about the Psalms and why they use the Psalms in this expression of their faith. Three things real quick. First, the Psalms confirmed the reality of their faith. Confirm the reality of their faith. Our music should confirm the reality of our faith. There, there are experiences in life where the reality of our own faith may be severely tested. In these times, the lamp of our personal faith may even flicker, but the great songs from the past speak powerfully about a faith that is bigger and stronger than our immediate experiences. They renew our confidence and remind us in our, in our frailty that our faith is shared by a vast 
multitude who have sung these great songs before us, who, has, who have had faith that has been sustained. And as we sing songs, and as they sang the psalms, we lose our sense of solitariness and suffering, and we realize that we are part of a vast worshiping army, company of people throughout history who have proved the reliability and the sufficiency of God. Secondly, the the Psalms express the continuity of their faith. They rejoiced in the Lord's guidance and direction throughout centuries. They rejoiced in His faithfulness, not because they deserved it, but because over and over again, they had failed God. They had failed to live up to the standard that God had set for them. Even though they were faithless, God remained faithful. He called them, he equipped them, and he used them for his glory. And when we look back over Christian history, we notice that time and time again, God's people have failed. You failed God, I've failed God. Centuries ago, people have failed God. And, and we note that they should be destroyed. That every single one of us is a debtor to the past. The torch was passed from one generation to the next generation. Not by perfect people, but by men and women who, who were so indebted to God's grace that they could not keep the message to themselves. Thirdly, the Psalms declare the solidarity of Israel's faith. They didn't just give this expression to the faith in the past. The Psalms is not what this or that as we read through them we don't read that what this or that saint did but what the chief of all saints has done and what saints still do in it we see their attitude to god and their manner and behavior in the face of danger and suffering our faith is not a solitary experience and these great words from the past unite us with redeemed people of god throughout the centuries as luther says it When we hear, read, or sing these words, we receive the assurance that we are in the company of the saints because all of them join in the singing. These great songs with us, we can use their words to talk with God as they did. Here's a valid passport with which we can follow all the saints without danger. This beautiful, bright, polished mirror which will show you that Christian what Christianity is. It is one of God's vast and immeasurable benefits to be used for our good. Oh, to understand that you and I are great debtors to the past. The psalms and hymns and spiritual songs recall the experience of God's people across the centuries and remind us of all they have contributed to our lives. Do not dismiss that heritage, church. Those who will be our partners in heaven have left us with superb material to enrich our worship Sixthly, the witness of worship. The witness of worship. The procession of both of these choirs around the walls would have served as an act of witness to anyone watching. It culminated with Thanksgiving in the temple. There was, it was, this was never meant to be restricted religious, uh, to, to religious officials. Everyone in the nation would know that the people were honoring God's name and exalting God's goodness. Everyone would be able to see what was happening and hear the songs of praise because it says in verse 43 that the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Every worship service is an act of corporate testimony to the nature of God, to his word and to his acts. Any non-believer that walked into a Christian worship service should have no doubt about what and why we believe. 
The centrality of the Lord is to be the distinct element in all of our worship. Yet it can be marginalized, right? To an understanding ambition to make worship attractive or relevant. Well, we want worship to be attractive and relevant. We want people to come in and you know, feel like we're hip and cool or whatever. And that's the danger in some of our modern worship. Patterns can be unconsciously modeled after some entertaining TV program other than inspiring occasion for adoration and praise. All of our occasions for worship should incorporate the essential elements of adoration, thanksgiving, petition, the assurance of forgiveness, the exposition and submission to the word of God, the offering of our gifts, intercessions for our world and individuals, and the commitment to future service. Those who participate will ensure that in sharing their gifts that they always direct the attention to their Lord and not to themselves. Whenever any of us share in public aspects of worship, we do we do well to recall not only the ambition, but the determination of John the Baptist when he said of Christ, I must decrease and he must increase. Everything that we do is totally ineffective. I can stand in here and I can preach like some sort of mad, crazy person. And some of you think, Pastor, you do. But I, I could do that. And I could draw your gaze to me and not to the glory of the Almighty God. And I have failed. If that's what I'm doing. You see, he must increase. And I must decrease. I must cause your gaze to turn to the glory of God. Seventhly, hurrying, the vitality of worship. This passage describes for us the vitality, right? With, with every participant, there's this, they determine to offer their best. It says that it's recalled with joy. The Israelites were passionate, enthusiastic as they worshiped the Lord. They celebrated joyfully. They, they had not just choirs, but large choirs. The priests offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because they had much joy. There's nothing that is half-hearted about this worship. It is, it is the overflow of their hearts from a people who have experienced great generosity from God and incalculable, undeserved blessing showered on him. They have reveled in his great goodness. They enjoyed his gracious gifts. They cast themselves on his great mercy and experienced his great compassion. It is little wonder that they desired to offer great sacrifices. Eighthly, the unity of their worship. The unity. This act of worship was an occasion which united the citizens of Jerusalem and also the people from the surrounding countryside. The urban and rural population would have rubbed shoulders as they rejoiced in the infinite mercy of God. The Levites who lived some miles from the city were were sought out and brought to Jerusalem to celebrate. The singers were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages. Christians' worship can be markedly unifying can be this great unifying experience as people from all walks of life stand in need of the mercy of God and all are debtors to his grace and many of the things which might divide people become less than important in their 
united aim and privilege of adoring praise and thanksgiving and commitment. Sadly, we have often taken something that is to be unifying and used it as a source of painful division. And this is mainly because of our extreme stubborn position that we hold, our unwillingness to acknowledge each other's insights. There's a serious lack of tolerance and, and not having a forgiving spirit and failure to appreciate the very varying personalities may need different things in worship. Some people genuinely need quietness, time for reflection, and a creative silence in worship. Some people need that. While others long for something more vivacious and exuberant. If those who carried the symbols always clashed them loudly, they just walk around, bang, 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 right? If that's all they did, then the people who played the stringed instruments would be wasting their time. I'm no band director, but, but for some reason, I think you're not going to hear a guitar or a stringed instrument over a clanging cymbal. Both loud and softer instruments could be equally accommodated when everyone is treasured. No ambition other than we give God glory. That's it. Ninthly, almost done. The quality of worship. The whole narrative gives us this distinct impression of the quality of the Israelites. Everything is well done. There's nothing haphazard that day. All things were not hurriedly thrown together at the last moment. Hold on, we got to throw this in there. And let, hey, let's do this. Everything was well thought out from the recruitment of the singers to the composition of the choirs the combination of the instrumentalists, the route of their procession, and even the training of the chorus. Verse 42 tells us they sang under the direction of Jezrahiah. What I'm saying, church, is that when it comes to worship, the Lord is worthy of our best. He's worthy of our best. I don't spend hours preparing a sermon because that's just what I love to do. No. It's because God is worthy of my best. Not just part of me. When you come in here and sing songs to God and you're just haphazard, what are you saying about God? He's not worthy of your best. He's worthy of our best. Sadly, often we don't give it to him. Life is full for so many of us, right? We have pressures. And worship often receives neither our best preparation nor our total commitment. Oh, Lord, I got something else I got to do. My mind is elsewhere. I've had a rough week. Some things I can't share with you. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't get my best.
he deserves everything. Everything. Not part of me. Not part of the pastor. He doesn't deserve part of you. All of you. Lastly, the cost of worship. Let me be honest. I'm probably about to make some of you mad. That's okay. It's God's word, not mine. The final verse presents us with this final aspect of authentic worship. The offering of our money, as well as our time and service for the Lord's work. For all of its attractiveness and its splendor and its excitement in this great service of dedication would inevitably draw to a close and the provision must be made for the continuing worship of God's people. The priests and Levites, those that lived in Jerusalem and beyond, had to be supported by the generous gifts which the Lord had described and commanded for them to give. The people had promised that such offering would not be withheld, so the concluding paragraph of this whole narrative describes the appointment of those who would be in charge of the storeroom for the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, and how they are going to care for the priests and the Levites. In recording this narrative, the author mentions six characteristics of the people's giving to the Lord's work. First, it was organized. Men were appointed. So there's organization in the giving. It was specific. There were contributions, first fruits, and tithes that were given. And then we see that it was grateful because the ministry of the servants had brought them such delight. They gladly gave. They were grateful in their giving. It was obligatory. All of Israel contributed. It was regular. Daily portions were given. It was universal. Everyone, including the Levites, set aside a portion for the priest's support. Listen, can I just be real honest? It's hard to talk about giving. And it's really hard to talk about giving when you're pretty much the only staff member at a church. But here's the deal. Without money, you don't have ministry. And you can't pay your pastor. They gave so that ministry continued, and so the Levites and the priests were supported. That's why they gave. And again, to be honest, I don't think any pastor should have to live in such a way that they can barely pay their bills. Some people struggle with, well, what should the pastor be paid? What should we pay the pastor? What should a church... In fact, I bet you if we punch that into Google, we'd find a gazillion different results. What should a pastor be paid? From nothing to I don't know what. Millions of dollars, I don't know. Right? What does the scripture say? Scripture says that if he leads well, he's worthy of double honor. Talking about his pay. Scripture says don't muzzle the ox. The point being that he should be well taken care of. The point being, you could you say, well, what do I make? Okay, double it. 
That's what Scripture tells us. Because if he's wondering how he's going to pay his next bill or how he's going to put food on his table, then he's not focused on ministry. I can guarantee you that. So this is indeed something that we should consider when we give to the church. This is indeed something to think about as you come into church, that your giving is an active part of your worship. Furthermore, I can assure you that as a pastor, I give to our church. When God is at the center of our life, everything is viewed as his and not mine. It's all his. And support for gospel ministry is a joy for us, not a burden for us. And when the gospel governs our giving, it is always an act of gratitude because my giving is governed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul rightly insisted that God's servants and needy people must be lovingly and regularly supported. And the early Christian worshipers provided an opportunity for offering of money for the Lord's work. What I'm about to say is a hard saying, but one I believe is correct. And that is, no worship can be honoring to God if those who serve the Lord are deprived of life's basic necessities. No worship can be honoring to God if those who serve the Lord are deprived of life's basic necessities. Giving to the Lord's Work is an active part of your worship. And if you say, well, I'm going to go to church, I don't give, then I'm telling you, you are not actively worshiping. I close with this. What is our chief end? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How do we glorify God? We do so in our worship. Every single aspect of our worship, whether singing, giving, teaching, and every aspect of our life. It's about a single solitary purpose, and that is to bring glory to God. So when we sing, it's to glorify God. When we drop money in the offering, it's to glorify God. When we listen to the sermon, it's to glorify God. What we do in life, we should ask, how does this glorify God? Sadly, in the light of Israel's later experience, this description that we read here of their generosity following the dedication service reads like a forgotten dream. When Nehemiah left Jerusalem and returned to his work at the Persian palace, things gradually began to deteriorate. And one of the very first things to suffer was the support of the Levites. One of the very first things. Well, can't support those Levites anymore. And they gradually went down. That widespread, sustained, and neglect is one of the themes in the book's closing chapter. So I ask you today, is every aspect of your worship in life surrendered to the glory of God this morning? Is he the purpose and the priority of your worship? Because it is all about his glory. Is it reflected in your worship this morning? And if not, then repent. Repent. Just confess it. God, it's not about your glory. It's been about me. Just confess it. Get right. And this morning, if you're here and you're like, I don't, I don't even know what you're talking about, Pastor. Maybe you don't know the Lord. I'd love to talk with you later. 
have a conversation. Just come and say, Pastor, can we talk? Let's close a prayer.